0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 370, Interview with Peter Bradley about his book, The Last Train, A Family History of the Final Solution. Peter Bradley was a labor MP between 1997 and 2005. More recently, he co-founded and directed Speakers Corner Trust, a charity which promotes freedom of expression, open debate, and active citizenship in the UK, and developing democracies. He has written, usually on politics, for a wide range of publications, including The Times, The Guardian, The Independent, The New Statesman, and The New European. Mr. Bradley, thank you for being with us today.
1: Not at all. It's a pleasure.
0: Absolutely. So um, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on, uh, besides your well-written book, was you talk about your family's time during the Second World War in Germany, in Europe. But at the same time, you use their story, if you will, as as a way to kind of cover, in a broad sense, a history of anti-Semitism. So um, was that your inclination when you first set out, or was it mostly just to tell their story, but then you had to dig deeper to figure out why all this was going on?
1: Yes, that's it. that's precisely it. I, mm. uh, the, 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 the way the book uh, developed is is uh, almost a mystery to me, because I didn't start out to write a book. <laughs> right. uh, I, I set out with, with a, a very limited ambition. I, I, I wanted to find out. I knew what had happened to my grandmother in, in Latvia. Mm. to which my grandparents were deported in 1941, but I didn't know what happened to my grandfather. I wanted to see if I could find out more. Um, and oddly enough, what really got the whole process going was that I wanted to follow the route of the train that deported oh. them from, from their home in Bamberg and Bavaria via Nuremberg to to Riga. That was a very limited ambition, and I can't tell you why I felt the need to do that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and paradoxically, it's one of the few things I didn't ever establish in, in the process of, of my research. But it was that question that I asked, You know, what was the train route that led me from one question to another, to another, to another, until you know, I distilled it into two questions. The right. first I've touched on, what happened? To my, to, gr- to my grandparents, and, th- and the second and perhaps more profound mm-hmm. was why did it happen? Uh, what awful accumulation of, of ideas and events led to that moment when my families, my grandparents, former friends, their neighbors, the people they'd done business with, the people who came and shopped at their Draper store, you know, what led them? to put my grandparents on, on a train and, and on that train uh, to Latvia and right you know it it, it isn't it, it, it isn't enough to say oh well, the nazis did it i mean where did the nazis come from how how did the nazis find it so right relatively straightforward to uh, to mine and uh, uh, and revive Ancient hatreds. Where did those hatreds come from? How did they develop over the time? And, and what was the impact on on my family's lives and those of the people that they they lived with, the Jewish community of their part of Germany and the, uh, and Europe in general? So, as you say, my my I've used my what what we know of my family's history, mm-hmm. uh, which goes back, according to the records we have, and to the late 15th century. I've used my my family's history and their experiences to try to eliminate, uh, sorry, illuminate a much broader and longer history.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you you bring up a good point because someone had to be in those Nazi uniforms. Someone has to be in these soldier uniforms and not to get too political, but we're seeing a lot of that today. So you ask this question, how could my family's neighbors turn on them? Well, as we're seeing today, if you can make a society fearful or make them nervous or uncertain about the future, I think they think less and feel more, and, and, that, and they normally go off of their negative emotions. And yeah, I think the Nazis were able to brilliantly underwhelm the, the moral compass of, their own, of the German people, and they were able to get away with a lot of things up until they were literally stopped by other armies.
1: Well, that, that's very true. I mean, the, the Germans were in a particular uh, set of circumstances after the the First World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were many uh, contributors to the rise of the Nazis and, and then what followed. It was the humiliation of the defeat in the First World War. It was the uh, shame uh, attached to that. It was the... Uh, really uh, rigorous and, and perhaps unjust uh, reparations that the Allies heaped on. Mm. Mm-hmm. Them. Uh, it was the economic collapse, uh, the Great Depression, uh, hyperinflation. It was the weakness of the democratic institutions of the Weimar Republic. These all contributed to a, a set of circumstances that the Nazis were willing and, and very able to exploit. Uh, and they literally said... You know, to to the to the German uh, to the German people, mm-hmm. we will make you great again. You know, this is Germany's destiny. Uh, right. You know, Deutschland über alles. That's exactly what it means. Uh, Germany first. Germany above all. Um, they played on the on the perceived weaknesses and and critically, they told them, you know, you couldn't. You, you we are a, a, a heroic people. There's no way right. we we could be have been brought low in this way had it not been for fifth columnists had it not been for the enemy within. And who was the enemy within? Well, of course, it was the Jews. And it was the Jews uh, because the Jews have always been the scapegoat down the ages. They were able to exploit uh, the germ of of what I called earlier an ancient hatred that never Mm -hmm. really goes away. Uh, Sometimes it waxes strong, sometimes it wanes, but it's always there. Uh, and it can be called up uh, by people who are ruthless and determined, uh, and indeed, that the Nazis were both.
0: Right. You you make a good point because nationalism is one of those double-edged swords that you, if you use properly, like say, uh America coming together in the 1960s to put a man on the moon kind of thing, you know, that's when your national pride can serve a positive purpose. But then there's obviously the other side. And the Nazis did that brilliantly um by working the people up, telling them what they wanted to hear. And the best part of their message was, like you said, this is not your fault. If it wasn't for the Jews, we would be a powerhouse. They're the ones who brought us low, and we have to get our revenge and remove them so we can be great once again.
1: Well, that, that's pre- precisely it. And and of course, that technique has been used uh, innumerable times down the ages. It, it is still in use today from unscrupulous yes. populists. And yes. when we turn our back on, on reason, we turn our back on justice, too. Uh, and all kinds of things become possible. And, and you know, interestingly, you know, it was Plato back mm. in the time of the uh, of the Athenian democracy, whose objection to, to democracy, because he, he wasn't himself a Democrat, was that it, um, it was too easy for unscrupulous populists right. to uh, mislead uh, the people, to lead the people astray. Uh, and it was a dangerous uh, a dangerous politic to adopt well I think we we might differ with Plato in terms of of our attitude to democracy, but he was quite right about its vulnerability.
0: Absolutely, because you just a couple of minutes ago you just mentioned all the unique set of circumstances that came together after the Great War that Hitler and the Nazis took advantage of. It would I would think that today people don't really bother with waiting for events; they create their own drama, their own lies, their own emergency, or their own crises, if you will, so they can then stand up and say, "Hey." I'm the person that can solve them, even though a lot of it has been generated by social media.
1: Well, that's that's right. But there is always a common element. And that is there mm. has to be an enemy uh, and oh, usually an enemy within uh, that right. has to be overcome in order that those of us who are, you know, sufficiently pure in, in, in the Nazis case was sufficiently Aryan. Mm-hmm. uh uh, the, so that they can they can succeed, they can triumph. So there must right. be somebody who must be brought low. There must be somebody who is responsible for the problems that we're facing, for the humiliation we or, or the shame that we feel, and in the vanquishing of of, of whom we will overcome and uh, we will be great again. Uh, and that's the that's the, the you know the constant danger of this
0: right. kind of politics. A- absolutely. So. Um a couple of minutes ago you you mentioned that you had not initially set out to write a book but you have done you have written stuff before articles or whatever but I guess um, this just maybe somehow evolved into a book as these things do. But I was hoping you could uh, tell us a little bit about yourself besides my cursory introduction, uh, introduction at the beginning of this episode.
1: Well, I've, I, I've had a kind of, uh, I suppose, a varied uh, career. I right. started in social research. I worked for a, a, a research center called the Center for Contemporary Studies Um and from there, I, which was pretty poorly remunerated, I have to say. So <laughs> from there, I moved into something that was a little better remunerated, which was public affairs. Right. Uh, I ended up with my own very small uh, company, but, but I had always had a, an interest in, in politics. I served on Westminster City Council as a Labour member in the 80s and, and 90s. Uh, and incidentally, in the recent local elections in uh, uh, in the UK, just a couple of weeks ago, Labour won Westminster for the first time in its history, which is very exciting. Wow! Uh, sadly, I stepped down 25 years ago, <laughs> but I, I stepped down <laughs> in order to uh, fight and win my seat in uh, in Parliament. So I was a, an MP for a number of years, right? A uh, uh, Labour MP, and after that. I co-founded a charity called Speaker's Corner Trust, which uh, is a a small charity, but one that is dedicated to promoting freedom of expression, public debate and active citizenship. And it's something very close to my heart because, uh, you know, society or or, or certainly democracy is only as good as we collectively make it. Uh, And if we leave it to others, we will end up where many of us are today, uh, in, uh, in an unhappy situation where our democracy is, is uh, weakened and uh, mm-hmm. where the rights and freedoms to which we, we attach so much importance are in retreat. Uh, and, and as I say, that's because I believe in, in, in many cases we don't take, you know, our own part in, in making a democracy vital right. uh, and thriving. We don't take that part as seriously as we can. We have got we ha- always have time to twiddle around on social media, uh, <laughs> but we don't have time to support our own democracy.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that at the end of it after talking about the Nazis and the history of the Holocaust, but you're right. I mean, this organization, we should be able to get together, talk discuss, debate, disagree without fist flying, without violence, without personal attacks. Because like you said, the, it's, it's almost like anything else. The more you put into it, the more you get out of it. And if you don't participate, complaining about it won't do any good because you weren't there when you were needed the most.
1: Well, that, that's right. And I think, incidentally, that, that's one of the ways in which Nazism took hold in uh, in Germany in the 30s. The mm-hmm. Nazi party never actually won a, a, a kind of majority in the Reichstag, right. but once it had seized power, uh, it started to uh, oppress its uh, opponents, uh, starting with its political opponents, the social democrats, mm-hmm. the socialists, the communists. Right. Uh, it started to take hold and control of the press and media, Um, And then it started with very relatively small steps uh, to set out on the route that it took that led ultimately to the invasion of uh, uh, most of Europe and uh, the implementation of, of the Holocaust. And there were small steps which people after the war, in particular, Germans after the war said, well, we didn't really notice. We didn't know we were on this. this this." Right. And in some cases, you could say, well, perhaps we can see that that's the case. But it was also very, I think, convenient for people to say, yeah, well, we didn't really know what was happening. Yeah. Um, what we did see was that our living conditions were getting a bit better. You know, there was more or less full employment. The economy was stabilized. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we had a, you know, a military again. We felt, you know, a certain national pride. Things were getting better, right. uh, and so we went along with it. But it was, you know, it was basically the suspension of belief, the suspension of, of uh, you know, moral engagement that mm-hmm. allowed these kinds of things to happen. Uh, and what what I find particularly interesting, actually, in in looking at that era is not so much the people who went along with it. And, and it wasn't just Germans, of course. In in, in, right. in many of the countries, including Latvia, where my grandparents were murdered, uh, there were collaborators. Now, some of them were willing, very willing, because they mm-hmm. were Nazi sympathizers or they were, you know, uh, aggressive anti-Semites. Some of them went along for the plunder, um, and some went along because everybody else was, and some went along because they were frightened... Uh, not to. But what's right. particularly interesting to me is those very few countries where people said, no, this isn't the right thing to do. We can see it for what it is. This is not what we want to be as a society. And mm-hmm. We are going to resist. Um, the examples are very few, but there are some. Right. Uh, I could, yeah. Yeah, I could go into those now, or, or, or later if you want. Up to you.
0: Well, tell you, well. Let, let's go into it a little bit later after after we establish kind of stuff that happens with your, with your family, and we can juxtapose uh, that. So let's jump into this uh, story, this incredible story about your parents. Uh, let's start with your father. Could you tell us a little bit about him and when his trouble started happening uh, with the state?
1: Yeah, my father was born in 1915. My uh, his his father. Uh, was away uh, on the front line in the in the First World War. He was a, a proud Prussian, uh, patriotic German, and a, a and a veteran of the First World War. Right. Uh, so my father was born uh, in the early part of the First World War, uh, brought up at, uh, in Bamberg, a beautiful city in Bavaria, a city that he loved all his life, indeed, and, mm-hmm. and to which he returned. Uh, uh, in, in later life on an annual basis when he met up with old school friends for their reunions. But wow. he would would have been eight years old, uh, sorry, 18 years old when the Nazis came to power. Um, he was just finishing uh, school. Mm-hmm. Uh, he recounts in a very brief family history that he wrote in later life, in I think in the 1990s, that He was the last Jewish student to graduate from the the school he attended. He was the only one at the graduation ceremony who didn't uh, throw out a Hitler salute. And he said at the time that his headmaster, his principal, grasped him all the more warmly by the hand for that that statement. (laughs) Right my um, oh. ha- my father had a habit of seeing the best in people so it's, it's not always a re- he's not always the most reliable witness although it's to his credit that that he sought yes. the best in 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 people but of course at the age of 18 he ought to have had the world at his feet he came from a you know not not, not um, a relatively prosperous Mm-hmm. family background he was an only child he had a fascination with science um, that he sustained for the rest of his life he, he was desperately keen to go to university but by that time uh, of course he, he was not allowed to go to university as a, as a Jew in fact there was precious little he was allowed to do right uh, so he uh, he uh, took up a, an apprenticeship at a uh, quite a big uh, drapers firm called Schwarzschild Ox in Frankfurt. Uh, they also mm-hmm. had uh, branches in London, so it was quite a, a well-known uh, uh, company. Because uh, wow. my grandfather had a drapers shop in in Bamberg, and of course he was very keen that my uh, that his son would succeed him. So off my father went to to Frankfurt. Uh, And it was uh, there that he was overtaken, as, as every Jew in Germany and Austria was, by Kristallnacht, the night of the broken glass on the 9th of November 1938.
0: Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination, with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com Yeah. His whole life, like you said, his whole life should have been ahead of him. He was a young kid. He's, you know, there's a bit of money. There's his his father owns a business. I mean, life should have been good. It was just the, uh, the timing of everything that happened. So what happens to your father after the night of Kristallnacht?
1: So the next day, uh, he is dismissed from Schwarzwald ox uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, with a glowing reference, it has to be said, but dismissed nonetheless, uh, right. and arrested uh, and sent with just about every other adult male uh, German Jew to a concentration camp. Meanwhile, his father was arrested in Bamberg mm-hmm. and ended up in Dachau. My father, uh, where he incidentally, he he was there for a month. He was only released, as many Jews were in order to sign over ownership of of his Um, business to an Aryan. And and ironically, Bombay was a city that wasn't uh, much damaged by Allied bombing uh, during mm -hmm. the war. But one of the few buildings that was flattened was my father's, uh, my grandfather's shop. Uh, And in it at the time was the young Nazi who had acquired it from him for a knockdown price. So there was a certain gruesome justice.
0: Yes. I I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> You're right. I mean, it's all over the place. It's like on one hand he deserves it, on the other hand he is a human being, but yeah, that's the absolutely. way it worked out. Yeah. I
1: think the irony would have been sufficient had the building been flattened, you know. I I, I I'm I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not particularly joyous that he was in it right. at the time, but it's just one of those quirks right. of history. But my father was um, in Buchenwald for much longer. He was in for five months and through mm. the winter of thirty-eight, thirty-nine. And I visited Buchenwald a couple of years ago when I was uh, finalizing my research. And even now, uh, <clears throat> there are very few buildings left there. Right. Um, when uh, at the end of the war, it was taken over by the Soviets. And it was so riddled with disease, typhus and, and so on and so forth, that they... Mm-hmm they um, demolished most of the buildings but even now it is the most barren desolate forbidding place uh, right uh, and uh, I can only imagine what my father went through um, in his five months there and I say I can only imagine it uh, because he never spoke about it he wrote very little in his family history about it uh, and he uh, I'm not really surprised because if you've lived through that, why would you want to talk about it? Why would you want to relive it?
0: Absolutely. I mean, the fact that yeah, he had to go through it, I mean, and the fact that he's not saying anything, it must've been worse than we can possibly imagine. Uh, Going back to your grandfather. Yes. The, the, uh, The Jews were forced to sell their possessions, their businesses, pennies on the dollar, and as we're going to see, and as you point out in your book, there was a lot of financial transactions going on between the Jews and the Nazis because the Nazis were going to find a way to get paid uh, during all of this carnage and bloodshed. Um, But going back to your father for a second, um, he receives a miracle of sorts because somehow someone has either filled out the right form or pulled strings or however it happened, uh, that he's going to be able to go to the UK.
1: That's right. He says in his family history that he never found out who it was or wow. Jewish charity it was that put his name on a list or how they came by his name, indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was able to to leave Germany. He left on the 10th of May uh, 1939, so um, five months before the beginning of the, of the war. Right. It has to be said that he was one of the relatively few uh, German Jews who managed to get to this country, about 70,000 of the 500,000 who had applied for visas. So mm-hmm. he was very lucky. Um, he, he came here, however, on condition that he would uh, uh, only be here for two years, that he wouldn't be able to work without the permission of the Ministry of Labour. And so he had to mm-hmm. subsist on handouts from Jewish charities. Uh, small kind of casual jobs that he could get with those charities. He was a doorman for some time at a community centre. Right. Um, he he rec- he did recount the the story of how a very kind family of Quakers invited him once for Sunday lunch, but he couldn't turn up. He couldn't get there because he couldn't afford the tube fare, the underground uh, oh. train to get there. And he felt for the rest of his life he felt guilty that they might have felt he, that he hadn't appreciated their gesture. Right but that was how destitute he and, and many other refugees were. Can,
0: can I say real quick that I was a little surprised at this part because it's not like he's a 10-year-old a boy or a 12-year-old boy. I mean, he's military age. You would think that the, the Nazis would make sure, uh, quote-unquote, that he could never fight against them. But however it happened, like you were saying, almost a miracle, somebody filled out a form, some organization asked, and his name was... Put on a list, and now he's bound for England.
1: Yes, yeah. Well, he was lucky in many ways, and sometimes you just, you know, you, you it's, it's just impossible to, to understand how these kind of things come about. I mean, I mean, right. I mean we talk about, uh, you know, the, the 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 gruesome coincidence of of, of uh, the, the the man who, who acquired uh, my grandfather's business, but my my right. father he escaped from Germany on the tenth of May. 1939. He was arrested on the 10th of May, 1940, by the British oh. uh, as an enemy alien. He had tried to enlist uh, the outbreak of right. war, um, and uh, when my he died in 2004, when my mother died in 2010, and my sister was clearing out our family home, she came across a trunk in a dark mm-hmm. cupboard. That I'd never known, uh, I'd, I'd never seen before. i never knew it existed. But in that trunk were all kinds of artifacts of the past, right? Um, including my father's uh, uh, Torah, his 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 uh, uh, Old oh. Testament, and his prayer shawl. Now, my father was, uh, if anything, he was anti-religious, uh, and yet wow. he had kept, and he said that you know he'd been brought up in a household that. Uh, was not terribly religious but his his own father kept the holy days and was the chairman of the synagogue choir but that was about as far as it went my father said that whatever tenuous uh, uh, connection he still had to Judaism snapped in Buchenwald he, he, he felt that this you know a god that could wish this on on, on his followers was not a god he wanted to follow uh, himself so um but nevertheless, he kept these these items. He he kept 700 letters that he and my mother exchanged almost on a daily basis when when my father finally was in the British Army was stationed in India. Right. He kept uh, 35 letters that had reached him from his his own parents in Nazi Germany. Um, uh, and believe it or not, I've forgotten what, where I
0: started.
1: <laughs> I mentioned the trunk. <laughs> What, what question? What was your question?
0: Uh, you know what I can't remember either. No, but but I have to tell you that was, that was one of the most uh, poignant part of the bu- of the book. Your father and I'm paraphrasing obviously. Your yeah. your father said something alike, um, Well, here's this God, all powerful, all knowing. We're His people, and we still get treated like this. Yeah. No, no, I I but but it was poignant that he kept those things of his faith. Even though he kind of moved away from the faith, he's like, "No, I can't get rid of these." But, 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 yeah. I mean, how could he not be affected by his time in that camp? And he's only there because he is Jewish. I mean, how could he not have a reaction to well, that? Well,
1: absolutely. And my incidentally, I've remembered now why <laughs> I bought. Oh, please! And that was because there was one other thing in that trunk, uh, and that was. Uh, a a copy of a newspaper, the News Chronicle, which no longer exists. Mm -hmm. uh, It was folded open on page seven. And there was a report, uh, a news report, Mm -hmm. um, about the queue that formed outside an army uh, recruitment centre in in London uh, in the early part of the war, I think just October 1939. And they wrote about a young man who had uh, been recently in the concentration camps in Germany, who was now very eager to join the British Army. And, of course, although it didn't name him, was clearly was my father. But they turned him down on the basis that, you know, he had a suspect background. And, uh, you know, which is pretty ironic, given that, you know, he, he, he above all... Young men had a vested interest in fighting the Nazis. But anyway, a year later, he's arrested as a, an enemy alien and shipped across the sea, the Atlantic uh, Ocean, uh, to Canada. Uh, and the day before his ship, uh, the Ettrick, mm-hmm. left Liverpool, uh, a similar ship, the Arundora Star, had been sunk by a, a torpedo from a German U-boat and wow. with much l- loss of life, uh, including many Italians who'd been arrested and and were also being shipped away as enemy aliens. And my father would have known this. So he and my my uncle, as it happened, my my maternal uncle were on that ship uh, along with uh, known Nazis, German Nazis, who'd been arrested also as enemy aliens, but with greater uh, justification and uh, 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 prisoners of war, who had been captured early in the in the conflict, and they were all shipped cheap by jowl to Canada, and that's where they right. stayed, uh, more or less cheap by jowl for the next two years, ca- uh, um, you know, prisoners of the British and the Canadians.
0: I wanted to ask, when, when he tried to join the military and was told no, was that more of a, uh, well, there's a chance that you could be a double agent versus we don't want you because you're Jewish. Was it more the, they couldn't be sh- sure where his loyalties lie?
1: I think it was a bit of both but uh, but more probably of of you know the the, the panic uh, uh, right. this could be a you know fifth columnist uh, ah. and and it was being said at the time that the reason why the nazis were finding it so easy to sweep west towards the channel through france and the low countries was because they were being aided by uh um column, you know uh, uh Uh, Regiments of fifth colonists, Mm -hmm. and so the you know the panic, which is understandable to an extent, uh, gripped the UK uh, uh, and, but you know in the run-up to the war, when when German Jews were desperate to escape Nazi Germany, Mm -hmm. uh, the UK, the US, and just about every other democracy, while wringing its hands over the excesses of the Nazis, made it extremely difficult for refugees to gain asylum in their in their countries and much of that was fueled i have to say by uh, a rather unpleasant anti-semitism
0: yes you covered that in your book as well you know germany's like hey okay we want to get rid of our jews we don't want them here take them in take them in and a lot of countries would either not take them in or take in very little and um, yeah so this is not something that is just happening in nazi germany as well and like you said this goes back 2,000 years, so I'm not surprised that anti-Semitism is, you know, scattered far and wide. So for your father, after two years of being in a camp or whatever the proper term is, and, and please feel free to say anything else about your father that you want, but it does work out for him. He is eventually able to go back to England. He is to go into the army, but like you said, it's not like he's going to be sent to Europe. Maybe the brass still doesn't trust him. But he's on his way to faraway India.
1: Yes, after two years, I mean, he he spends more time in those camps than than, than most. I mean, it's wow. Fairly early on, after after uh, in in May nineteen forty, that many uh, refugees and, and, and German and Austrian uh, refugees were were arrested. The, the British realised they'd made a, a bit of a blunder. Um, And they started releasing them. They were being held in camps uh, on the Isle of Man, uh, for example. My father was there Mm -hmm. quite briefly and my uncle too. The British realised they'd made a bit of a mistake and started to release them. But unfortunately, uh, they'd already contracted with uh, the authorities in Canada and Australia that they were going to send them boatloads of of prisoners. And they told the Canadians, they told the Australians that these were dangerous prisoners and had to be well guarded. Right. By the time they realised that actually they weren't, <laughs> they thought, "Oh, this is a bit embarrassing. We'll send them anyway." And because <laughs> because they didn't have enough of the genuine Nazis that they'd rounded up, that they right. they leavened or they kind of balanced it out by sending some innocuous uh, uh, so-called enemy aliens like my father. So the whole thing was a total blunder. Right. Uh, and my father paid the price for it, um, but. You know, or having said that, he was better off imprisoned in Canada than he would have been in Buchenwald. So you know, that, yes. that has to be accepted and, and acknowledged. But when he finally made it back um, to the UK, uh, he, he was able to enlist. Right. He was desperately keen to uh, fight in the European theatre, but he was sent, instead of you know being sent out to defeat the Nazis, he was sent out to defend the empire. And so right. he ended up for two years in India, um, uh, and at the end of the war, indeed, when he applied twice to be posted to Germany, uh, which by then was conquered and occupied, right. uh, and he, you know, was able to present himself as a, an ideal candidate for an interpreter for mm-hmm. for the armed forces. But he also said I, to to the British Army, I, I also want to go there because I want to try to find out what's happened to my my family, to my parents. He twice right. applied and he was twice turned down. He was so, clearly he was so critical to the defense of the empire <laughs> that he was, right. could spare him. Exactly. But it was pretty um, hard-headed, I have to say, of the of the authorities to, to to make those decisions.
0: Yeah, a lot of mistakes were made um, and, and they try to iron them out as best they can, but mistakes are mistakes and he's got to live with as best he can. So in general... Things work out for your father. He's able to, you know, he obviously knew your mother. He exchanged letters. And so that's going to work out for him. However, there's other um, members of your extended family, your grandparents, your aunts and your uncles and you. And th- this was another part of the book that I absolutely enjoyed, as poignant as it was, it was also devastating to read. And and by the way, can I just say to the listeners real quick, you write wonderfully. I absolutely loved the prose that you put down, but uh, not, not to make you embarrassed or anything but so anyway so you started listing these people you would give a short bio and then you would bring and then you would of course end their little story with their end and after i don't know how many of these people did not survive it becomes gut-wrenching but this stuff does need to be set down on paper
1: well i think it i think it does and uh, and you know i think we need to understand uh, mm-hmm. um how these things happen, as I said right at the outset, the question that I that confronted me when all the other questions had been answered uh, was why? Why does yes. this happen? And I say somewhere in the book that you know, anti-Semitism doesn't descend like debris from space. Right. It's more like an infection. You know, George Orwell wrote wrote very cogently on on this matter. It's more like an infection that we carry, uh, and yeah. sometimes. Uh, it's abated and and there are no symptoms. Uh, and sometimes they can be summoned uh, and they can have devastating uh, results. And we need to understand the circumstances under which, you know, bad things happen. Not just to Jews. I mean, this, right. this my family is Jewish and my family had an experience that many Jewish people in in Europe have had down the centuries and then in Mm -hmm. on a catastrophic scale in the middle of the the 20th century. But, you know, other people were targeted by the Nazis and other people have been the victims of genocide uh, since. So it isn't just about Gentiles and Jews. Uh, It's about uh, men and women who can do good things and men and women who are also capable of doing bad
0: things. Can I just say real quick before you go on, that reminded me of something. I wrote it down here because I, I, um, it moved me. You wrote, or you compared anti-Semitism to a disease, and you said something like, if it stays around long enough, and we're finding this true with COVID, if it stays around long enough, it can mutate. Reappear and maybe you don't recognize it at at first, but it's still those same negative feelings just wrapped in a new package.
1: Well, I think that's right, and of course, uh, it it, antisemitism has mutated over the centuries. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can find the the the, uh, its origins perhaps in the in the in the Bible with some of the uh, sentiments of St. Matthew, St. Paul, Mm -hmm. but then. It really becomes a big issue in the fourth century when there really was a a contest between the Christian church, the young Christian church, and and the established synagogue for, you know, dominance. And the Christian church prevailed. But at Mm -hmm. that time, there were Christians like St. Augustine who preached against the Jews, but he nevertheless saw that they served a divine purpose, because ultimately the Jews would be converted. And when they were converted, that would usher in, you know, the end of days. And so Jews must be preserved, albeit in dejected and subservient states. So I wouldn't say Augustine was much of a champion of the Jews, but he wasn't actually as virulently opposed to them as, as other uh, of his contemporaries and near contemporaries uh, St Gregory of Nisus and John Sesostom uh, who preached the most abominable uh, um, libels against Jews and of course established for all time this uh, uh, accusation that they were the Christ slayers and abominated by God and this right. was absolutely critical to the beliefs of the of the early church but the one thing that, Augustine uh, Gregory and, and John Siso had in common is that they are, are all saints uh, and yes. they continue to be saints and recognized and revered as such in in all the major Christian churches despite uh, the uh, what they preached uh, and its impact on Jews down the centuries
0: right
1: uh, so but you know we're familiar with the medieval persecutions and the Inquisition, and incidentally, you know, this country, which uh, the UK, which prides itself on its steadiness, its reasonableness, and its tolerance, of course, was the very first country that expelled its entire Jewish population, and that was in 1290. That's right. And Jews were not readmitted to England until 1656, you know, more than 350 years later. So I think it's wow. quite interesting... To can to, to wander to speculate as to whether Shakespeare, who established this kind of iconic uh, Jewish stereotype in Shylock, whether he in his lifetime had actually even met a Jew. But oh never wow!
0: I, <laughs> That's amazing.
1: Yeah, but and indeed, you know, the blood libel was made in Britain. The blood libel, uh, which is uh, the the accusation that that Jews uh, kidnap and murder. Christian children and use their blood in the leavening of, of, of matzahs at Passover. And this this yes. was this occurred first in Norwich, in uh, the east of England, mm-hmm. spread across the continent. So, you know, we, you know, in this country, while we may have um, the right to congratulate ourselves to an extent, it's only to an extent. We're as infected, right. frankly, as, as, as others in Europe uh, were at the time. But then it, you know, this wasn't simply a feature of the Roman teaching or the Roman church Uh, Martin Luther, the champion of the Reformation was even more vehement in his anti-Semitism or his anti-Judaism to to be more correct Mm -hmm. Uh, because anti-Semitism was really uh, an invention of the 19th century Uh, but before then we'd had the the progressive thinkers of the Enlightenment who were anti-clerical anti-religion, many of them But they still uh, were opposed to to, to, uh, Jews and to Judaism, Uh, many of them in fairly outspoken terms, Voltaire, Tom Tom Paine, William Cobbett. But uh, many others said, we've got nothing against the Jews so long as they stop being Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) If they want to be like us, then then they should have the same rights as as we do. But so long as they want to be Jewish and worship their, their... Jewish gods. Then, frankly, they're beyond the pale. But it was only in the 19th century that these religious-based, uh, religion-based objections to Judaism and and to Jews became something else and something actually even more dangerous, which was uh, anti-Semitism based on race, on blood and race. Because if you were a uh, uh, before this time. Uh, mm-hmm. If you were at risk of persecution from from Christians, you did have an option, limited though it was, and uh, and undesirable though it was to many Jews, you could convert to Christianity, often at the point of a sword. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, there there may be some form of escape for you, although, you know, in the time of the Inquisition, uh, Jews who had converted uh, came under uh, increasing suspicion. That they might yes. be backsliding and so on and so forth. So uh, to, to have been a Jew was almost as dangerous as to continue to be a Jew. Um, right. But in the 19th century, this changed because if you were Jewish by race, there was no way that you could escape. And of course, that is precisely why and how uh, so many millions of Jews perished in the Holocaust. They had not only no escape from being Jewish, Mm-hmm. they had no escape from the countries that that uh, uh in in uh, meant them harm can,
0: can i just say that that was again it was well written but it was one of the most um heartbreaking parts of your book you mentioned you know in the new testament you mentioned constantine the first roman christian emperor you mentioned the 4th century blood libel the martin luther the things that he said against jewish and, and you're right is but you like you said you've got these intellectual giants, the pop stars of their day, if you will, saying horrible things about Jews, and they should be treated a certain way. And as bad as all that is, the moment it goes from being a matter of faith to a matter of blood, well, now there's nothing they can do. In fact, they're not they're, they're subhuman. They're not quite as good as I am as a human being, as a Christian, a Protestant, or whatever. And when you have that as your basis, then yes, you're, you're free to do anything to them that you want. And they don't deserve mercy because they're not quite as human as you are. I mean, that is just a brilliant but brutal system
1: set up. Yes, and you're, you're quite right. The first step is to render your enemy um subhuman uh, oh. because once you've done that then the normal rules don't apply you don't have to treat these people the way that you would treat uh, your neighbor um even if you just, right. you know cordially despised your 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 neighbor mm-hmm. uh, and eventually these people become no more than vermin and the the you know my one of the reasons why uh, my grandparents found themselves in the horrible predicament in which they were was because Mm -hmm. they were from an older generation uh, to my father and his cousins, uh, the generation that had a chance of getting away and they had a chance of getting away for a number of reasons firstly, they had something perhaps to offer uh, countries of sanctuary, they had their brains or their brawn, they had Mm -hmm. economic value Uh, my grandparents were approaching their 60s um, and they had uh, little uh, economic value. In fact, right. you know, countries like the UK and the US felt that there would be a drain on their resources, on their taxpayers' hard-earned dollars. And that's one of the reasons why they were not prepared to open the doors to them, despite the danger they faced. But the other reason was because my grandparents' generation were patriotic Germans. You yeah. know, I mentioned that my grandfather was was a Prussian. He was you know, he was in the army during the First World War. He and and many like him could not believe that, despite the germ the Nazi propaganda, despite mm-hmm. uh, everything that happened um, from 1933 onwards, uh, he couldn't believe that they would do to him and to his family what they ultimately did. And right. so, when he had a chance, perhaps to get away. He didn't take it, and then uh, it was too late. I mean, I tell the story of my my grandmother's brother Ernst, which I, I find very poignant. He he was a bachelor. He uh, had fought in the First World War. Mm-hmm. He'd been on the front line. He was an officer. Uh, he won the Iron Cross, uh, despite the wow. fact he never actually pulled the trigger in 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 anger. He never actually. Uh, fired his gun at the enemy because he was a pacifist
0: <laughs> ah, right. he
1: survived he'd survived the war on the front line as a pacifist but still won the iron cross wow after the war um, he was he'd been injured in the war uh, he he declined the pension that he had earned mm-hmm. because he felt that there were others who needed it more than he did um, and wow. so here was this guy who was really heroic in many ways, but he was rounded up in the very first uh, roundup of Jews. Uh, and he was shipped to, uh, well, he, he'd been in Dachau too. Uh, in fact, he'd volunteered to go to Dachau. He was actually exempt because he was fairly wow. senior in, a, in an old veterans organization. But he volunteered to go with his fellow Jews to Dachau. And then uh, in the first roundup, um, of, of mass roundup of Jews uh, for deportation, he was uh, shipped to a camp in the south of France. This was the only westward deportation of Jews in in, right. in that period, and he, he was uh, held at a place called Gur in the foothills of the Pyrenees. But he ended up ultimately um, in Auschwitz, and, and this was a this was a German hero. But right. if it happened to him. It's not that hard to see how it happened to so many others of his generation.
0: Absolutely right. So you're sitting there telling that story, and I'm and I actually had to think if I had to put myself in his shoes. You're going to kick me out of the country, but I'm a German. I'm a patriot. I I am loyal to my country. Yes, I'm Jewish. But I'm also German, and that wasn't good enough for the authorities because they could only see the Jew in him. And so I imagine he and most of your other extended family uh, did not have the same fortunate uh, outcome as your father did.
1: No, we, I think uh, probably about 40 members of my father's and my mother's family uh, perished in, in the Holocaust. They would have been mostly but not, not exclusively of that Generation. Uh, there were others who were my my father's age, his cousins, and their small children. Um, there were many uh, of, of that generation who died too. But but I think it was it was the older people who had failed to see the signs or to heed the warnings, um, and ultimately they simply couldn't. They couldn't. They couldn't conceive of what of, of what was facing them. And then when they could see. Uh, um, what fate had in store with them, they were trapped. It was too late. Right. couldn't get out.
0: If I could real quick, I'd like to just juxtapose something you just said with something you said earlier. So yeah, a lot of people are thinking it can't get that bad or the Nazis aren't that crazy or whatever. But obviously at some point people figure out, yes, this is for real and they're going to go as far as they can. Now, Earlier, you said there were some people uh, in other countries or wherever in Europe that resisted the Nazis, that tried to help people. Uh, can you think of any of those, maybe one of those stories you would like to share with us as far as someone going, this is wrong. Yes, it's dangerous, but I'm going to oppose this political mo- movement as I see it and try to help somebody.
1: Yeah, I, I, and I think it's important, you know, I, I've t- I, my, my book deals with some pretty dark subject matter mm-hmm. uh, um, and some of the worst things that people can do to each other but it's right. really important for me uh, and I hope for, for readers to know of you know that, that life doesn't have to be that way but right. it does depend on choices that we make and that's, that's the glory of living in a democracy that you have the right to choose your government, you have to, the right to hold them to account Mm-hmm. You have the, the uh, you have choices to make, and you know my plea is that people make the right choices. Now, uh, many people in that dark period made the wrong choices or allowed others to make choices on their behalf. Um, but there were people and there were countries that resisted um, right. to some extent. Um, you you, uh, you could make a case. For Bulgaria, um, mm-hmm. they uh, and for Finland uh, too. But the, the the shiny example is Denmark. Um, right. mm-hmm. They had a small Jewish community, and they they were occupied. The Danes uh, from early in 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 the war. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, and it was relatively late in the course of the war when when the nazis decided to deport the the Jew, Jewish community from Denmark to the camps to mm. actually specifically to Theresienstadt right. in and what was then Czechoslovakia. Um, and the the Danes simply decided this wasn't going to happen they 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 didn't distinguish between a Jewish and a non-Jewish Dane right uh, and they were not going to allow anybody else to do that either. You know they they had a wow, uh, a, 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 you know a very keen sense of identity. Um, they were socially progressive, uh, mm-hmm. they had very distinct values. And they said this is not going to happen. And so almost overnight, uh, they hid their entire Jewish community. And then in a small or a flotilla of small boats spirited them over the water to neutral Sweden where the vast majority of Danish Jews survived. Wow. Uh, And that was because people took a decision. You know, they had a clear view of what was right and what was wrong and they decided to uphold what was right even at at their own personal risk. Mm -hmm. Now there were lots of contributory factors that actually made it easier for them to do what they did than than might otherwise have been the case, Um, and and I think we need to be clear-sighted about that, but nothing in my mind undermines the the courage and the heroism of, of the Danes, and the fact that they were determined when they could have made an easier choice to make yes. the right choice.
0: That's amazing. I I did not know that. So so the major the vast majority of those Jews survived because of the courage and the uh, yeah no that is that is uplifting and that is a. That is a great way to end the show. But I certainly do recommend to everybody to check this book out, the history of the Holocaust, the, the, the way you covered your families. And, of course, again, it was well written. Uh, I enjoy that very much. For all the listeners out there, the book is called The Last Train, A Family History of the Final Solution. Mr. Bradley, thank you very much for this book and for your time today.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, 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 it's very good of you.